There you go. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me, especially those listening on Jazz and Justice Radio, WPFW 89.3 on your FM dial in Washington, D.C. Of course, you may be listening to this uh, as a podcast, or you may be listening to it uh, on your smart speaker anytime by, uh, by just searching for Resistance Radio with John Kane. Uh, or listening online, uh, if you were following WPFW online as well. Uh, look, we are finishing up the year, so I want to start by doing as I often do, talk about the fact that WPFW is listener-supported radio, and we we really do depend on your contributions to the station. And I've got to tell you, as a uh, as a producer, a volunteer producer on WPFW. My presence on this station depends on your contributions as well. Uh, if the station doesn't exist, then I don't exist. And, and frankly, I, you know, management has to make decisions on what programming is, uh, is really being enjoyed on the station. And one of the ways that you demonstrate your uh, commitment to listening to this radio program is by making a donation to WPFW in the name of this uh, this program. Again, I'm a volunteer, so none of the, the proceeds for any of the fund drives go to me directly. They, do, they just go to the station. So um, I'm asking that listeners call 202-588-9739. That's the pledge line, 202-588-9739. Or go online to wpfwdc.org slash donate and follow the prompts so you can... Make a donation of, of any size. You can make a one-time donation. You can Look, I would love to see, especially in the Washington area, where I know there's so many lawyers and lobbyists and consultants that are involved in Native issues. I would love to see some of these professionals who have made a fair income off of Native people make a contribution to this fine radio station. So... Let some of you guys step up with your $1,000 donations or your several thousand dollar donations. But you know what? I realize that we are in, uh, we're living in troubled times. So not everybody has the resources to, uh, to make contributions. And they, they don't have to treat WPFW as a subscription service like they do with Netflix or, uh, or Disney Channel or, or anything else. But perhaps you should. Perhaps some of you should look at this as a, as a subscription and, and become a sustaining member of the station by giving your credit card information or your checking account information and make a modest monthly donation, whether it's $5 a month or $10 a month, far less than what you're paying for your, for your movie streaming services. Um, you, can, you can support this, this fine radio station. So I ask, um, as I do with every program, I ask that you support WPFW, and as such, uh, support this program uh, in the process. As I said, we're, we're winding down the year, and of course, every time we get into December, I am somewhat remiss by not mentioning two major historical um, events that, that Native people experienced. And of course, one of them is the, um, the execution, the largest mass execution in the history of the United States, signed by Abraham Lincoln, which resulted in the execution of 38 Dakota. The Dakota 38, as they are uh, known, 
um, in Mankato, Minnesota. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, uh, but I also, and, and I'm going to come back to that, and because I want to, I want to provide context. There's a lot of Lincoln apologists who suggest, well, yeah, the, yeah, sure, he signed the execution order for 38, but there were over 300 that were sentenced to death through the military tribunal or the military court that tried them, which was a sham. And, and I'm going to come back to that because I also have to talk about the anniversary of the massacre at Wounded Knee, which um, that anniversary was essentially on the 29th, yesterday. So I, I need to mention that. And, and I also want to provide context to that, both historical context and uh, and kind of visit where we're at with acknowledgement of, uh, of that crime that was committed. First off, I have to remind people, and I know I've talked about L. Frank Baum, the, the author and the writer of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the creator of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, if you will, and his role before writing that, that American classic, uh, as a newspaper editor for the Saturday Pioneer in Aberdeen Territory, uh, Aberdeen, North Dakota Territory, or Dakota Territory. Um, he, was a, he, he was not atypical of what, how Americans viewed Native people. On one hand, they liked to heroize with the stories they heard of, of Sitting Bull and, uh, and Crazy Horse and, and, and some of these these famous, uh, you know, War Geronimo, uh, all of these, these famous Indian uh, warriors as they were uh, written about in newspapers and, frankly, uh, you know, other forms of literature as well, magazine articles, all of that. That was a popular pastime to, to follow the, you know, these, these valiant um, exploits of not only the Buffalo Bills and the <laughs> Cody's and the you know, and the Daniel Boones and, and these folks, but, but the, the antagonists in these, uh, in these stories. So he wrote on December 20th of 1890, uh, the first of what would be, be called his two um, genocide editorials. And again, this is L. Frank Baum, um, the, again, the, the writer of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. In his, in his first one, he basically talked about Sitting Bull's death and, and the fact that he was dead. He didn't talk about the fact that he was murdered and, and that, you know, Indian police, BIA police were involved and the military was involved in his murder. Uh, but he said he was dead. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to read, I'm going to read this first editorial because I think it puts a lot of things into, into perspective. Sitting Bull, most renowned Sioux of modern history, is dead. He was not a chief, but without king, kingly lineage, he rose from a lowly position to the greatest medicine man of his time by virtue of his shrewdness and daring. He was an Indian with a white man's spirit of hatred and revenge for those who had wronged him and his. In his day, he saw his son and his tribe gradually driven from their possessions, forced to give up their old hunting grounds and espoused the hard working and uncongenial av avocation of the whites. And these, his conquerors, were marked in their dealings with his people by selfishness, falsehood, and treachery. What wonder that his wild nature, untamed by years of subjection, should still revolt. What wonder that his fiery rage still burned within his breast and that he should seek every opportunity of obtaining vengeance upon his natural enemies. 
the proud spirit of the original owners of these vast prairies of these vast prairies inherited through centuries of fierce and bloody wars where their possessions lingered last in the bosom of Sitting Bull. With his fall, the nobility of the redskin is extinguished. And what few are left are a pack of whining cur who lick the hand that smites them. The whites, by law of conquest, by justice of civilization, are masters of the American continent. And, their best, and the best safety of the frontier settlements will be secured by the total annihilation of the few remaining Indians. Why not annihilation? Their glory is fled, their spirit broken, their manhood effaced. Better that they die than live the miserable wretches that they are. History would forget these latter despicable beings and speak in later ages of the glory of the grand kings of the forest and plain that Cooper loved to heroism. We cannot honestly regret their extermination, but we at least do justice to their manly characteristics possessed accordingly to their lights and education by the early Redskins of America. That was written on December 20th, 1890, essentially nine days before the massacre at Wounded Knee. And, and again, he almost suggests like killing Native people was a mercy killing. It would be putting us out of our misery and it would preserve this no, notion of the noble savage for Americans, for white folks. They could keep their images of Native people and not ever have to really see us, to see that perhaps those images were false. Perhaps what they were taught about Native people were false. This was written in 1890, and it still rings true today. I use L. Frank Baum's genocide editorials in my debate over the mascot issue. Because it, it's, he's the one who said history would forget these later despicable beings and speak in later ages of the glory of these grand kings of the forest and plain. Look, that's, that's the foundation of the mascot issue. Ignore who we are and who we really were and create this grand illusion, this, uh, this false identity of these grand kings of the forest and plain. And then you can run around on your gymnasium or your football field claiming to be warriors or Indians yourselves without any knowledge of what the real experience was. But again, this was written on December 20th. The massacre wounded knee would take place on December 29th. And, and then Baum will write another genocide editorial. He, taught, he condemned this, um, this action. He said, the peculiar policy of the government in employing so weak and vacillating a person as General Miles to look after the uneasy Indians has resulted in a terrible loss of blood to our soldier, soldiers and a battle which at best is a disgrace to the War Department. So he wasn't concerned about the, the massacre of Native people. In fact, he, he, he obviously had called for it. He was saying there were, there, were, there were soldiers who were killed. Yeah, they got killed in their own crossfire. There was no shooting back from the Native people. Then he goes on and says, the pioneer, again, the newspaper, the pioneer has before declared that our only safety depends on the total extermination of the Indians. Having wronged them for centuries, we had better, in order to protect our civilization, follow it up by one more wrong and wipe these untamed and untamable creatures from the face of the earth. And this lies the future safety of our settlers and the soldiers 
who are under incompetent commands. Otherwise, we may expect future years to be filled with, to be full of trouble and the redskin as those have been in the past. So this was written by a contemporary newspaper calling for our extermination. Now, did, the genesis, did, did this massacre occur because of Al Frank Baum? Well, who, who's influenced by these things? You know, sure, the Saturday Pioneer would have some of his readership back east, but it was a localized paper. So this was what this was what was written at the time. And I think it's also important to note, which is often never noted, who the president of the United States was at the time. It was Benjamin Harrison. And now Benjamin Harrison had some notable accomplishments, you know, from an American standpoint. He added more states to the United States than any other president. He added North Dakota, South Dakota, Washington, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming. Of course, all predominantly native lands to the United States, and he and he did this in the run up to what would be this this massacre at, wound, at Wounded Knee. He also had had expanded the Navy, and was the president when the Navy backed the coup against Queen Liliuokalani in in Hawaii, and these white folks backed by the U.S. Navy would declare that the kingdom of Hawaii was no more, and now there was a republic of Hawaii, which they were now in command of. And they would, they would actually ask to be annexed by the United States, a false government propped up by the U.S. military, the Navy, would ask the United States to, to annex them. And, of course, that wouldn't actually ever happen. There would be no legal annexation. There would just be the illegal occupation of, the, of Hawaii and ultimately be, uh, would be turned into a state uh, many years later. But this is what took place. This was the context of this massacre at, at Wounded Knee. And, and so it, it also would, would lead people to understand why there wasn't a more violent resistance in Hawaii, knowing that under this president, they had committed this this incredible atrocity against the uh, you know uh, uh, against the the Lakota. So I, I think it's important to put all of this stuff into context. And often is we don't talk about Hawaii and Native people at the same time. I do, but most people don't. We don't talk about who the president was or what the legacy of that presidency was. We only talk about the singular act as if, as if it was spontaneous, as if it wasn't a strategy. Well, I also got to, you know, bring this somewhat to the contemporary conversation. There is actually an act, a, a bill in, uh, I'm sorry, a bill in Congress. It hasn't moved much in the last year. I think the last action was in April of 2021. And it's called the Remove the Stain Act. And it is an attempt to reverse the fact that the Congress awarded 20 medals of honor to soldiers for the massacre at Wounded Knee. 20 medals of honor. So here these guys are like shooting fish in a barrel and happen to wing each themselves on, on their own friendly fire, so to speak. It wasn't really friendly fire. It was, it was crossfire. And they were awarded 
20 medals of honor. One of those medals of honor went to a, a guy local here in, in the western New York area. There's a, there's a monument in Niagara Falls, a uh, memorial area with these beautiful granite posts. And, and they list one of these guys, a, a Medal of Honor recipients, who, uh, who you know, basically shot Native people in a ditch. And there's, a, there's an effort locally here and, of course, um, nationally to, um, to pass this or remove the Stain Act. Now, it's, only, it's, been, it's been read twice to the Senate, and it's been referred to the, um, uh, the Committee on Armed Services. But it hasn't moved in over a year. Elizabeth Warren is, was involved in this. Uh, Bernie Sanders was also a co-sponsor. But, but again... It, does, it, it hasn't moved. So there is an effort to at least rescind those medals. Of course, it, it doesn't, none of this stuff ever really gets to the legacy of this stuff. And, and I think it's important that people understand the legacy of this racism. I mean, this was the last military massacre of Native people. It wasn't the last massacre. <laughs> it was the last military massacre. Of course, I've talked about the murders of the Osage, those, those Osage who were murdered for their oil money. That was this strung out series of murders by, by many people. Only one person, I think, was convicted of, of uh, one of those murders or a couple of those murders. But this was what, according to the, the book Killers of the Flower Moon, which is going to be a, a major motion picture, I think, coming out this, this next year, it was written by David Grant, and he did the investigation on this and, and wrote what I think is a pretty good book, Killers of the Flower Moon it is. I recommend, I've, um, him to, I recommend the book to, to those of you interested in any of the subject matter. Um, I had him on my show when the book first came out uh, a number of years ago. <clears throat> but, but he detailed what may have been thousands of Osage that were murdered for their money, certainly hundreds. And... It was all done with this incredible amount of premeditation. It was, it was murders that were, guys who would actually marry an Osage woman, have children with her, and then murder her so these white guys could, uh, could take control of the, of the head rights to these oil wells. And of course, the Osage were never considered competent enough to manage their own money, so the federal government authorized guardians that were always white folks to oversee the Osage spending of their own money. Many of these guardians would ultimately, again, try to get involved, quote-unquote, romantically with, with uh, Osage women so they could, uh, so they could take over their, their wealth. Of course, this would have two, uh, two major issues. It would have, one issue would be, would be that now much of the Osage population would be people that were children that were were born of these 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 premeditated arranged marriages that were really involved with greed. So much of the Osage population would would be infiltrated by these the, the children of these men, and they would go on to leadership roles. You know, they, they would be more white passing than, than, than you know, um, full-blooded Osage. 
so they would have more opportunities. I mean, it's 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 a it's a crazy situation that nobody has ever fully addressed. The FBI would take on the Osage murders as one of their first major cases after the Teapot Dome scandal, I think. And this would be one of their test cases. They ignored the massacre in Tulsa of, of black people, but they they put a, a former Texas Ranger um, who was turned into an FBI agent to um, to investigate this thing. And that'll be the basis of the, of the, the movie that's, that's coming out. But he would only concentrate on, you know, on as if there was only one murderer, one serial murderer. But he wouldn't look at the entire circumstance with, with store keeps and dentists and morticians and doctors and, uh, and, and lawyers and all these other people who were involved in this grand conspiracy to defraud the Osage out of their money. But so this is an example of how the killing of Native people would continue. And of course, we would see this. We would see this over and over again. And of course, we would also see the, the private sector backed by police and courts and judges get involved in the massacres of black people in Tulsa and, 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 and almost every major city in the United States had these, what they call them race riots, but they were really just white people killing black people in large numbers. And most of them never, and in fact, I don't know if any of them resulted in any convictions of white people for committing these crimes against uh, against people of color. So I think it's important to, to understand the context of, of the military involvement in the massacres of Native people th throughout history. And I'm going to talk about another massacre uh, when I uh, get back to talking about Lincoln here. But I, I think it's important to put all of this stuff into context. The fact that you had a president who happened to be the grandson of a former president um, in Benjamin Harrison, who was involved in not only the illegal occupation and the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii, but would add six states to the United States. All that were, all of these states were predominantly Native territories. He would be, you know, part of the Allotment Act, the Dawes Act, that that would t strip Native people of their lands. He was a strong proponent of the assimilation of Native people, at, you know beyond the, the, the execution and the murders of, of Native people, he was a big proponent of, uh, of assimilation. Again, of course, the, the residential schools would span far prior to Benjamin Harrison, but it would also continue, in fact, in many ways to, to this very day. 200 years of residential schools that involved the torture and abuse and murders and uh, and. Uh, and death through incompetence and, and you know, and, and any number of abuses that the Native children faced at these residential schools. These residential schools where it was compulsory, where the children were ripped from their families, ripped from their communities, ripped from their nations, and sent sometimes hundreds, if not more than hundreds of miles away to these prison-like schools, funded by the federal government, run by the churches. A place that would all, all, in many ways, serve as the, the breeding ground for the clergy sex abuse scandals that are, that are now rocking much of the news today. <laughs> Which, by the way, are paying sometimes millions of dollars to the victims of, that clergy sex, of those, those clergy sex abuse scandals. To white boys, to white children. There, there aren't million-dollar settlements coming out to, uh, to Native kids who were abused sexually physically, 
psychologically or the the you know any of the the families um, surviving family members of those who were killed in these schools no there's no million dollar settlements coming to any native pe native people but to the but to the white boys who were uh, abused by these these perverted priests yeah there's there's plenty of there's plenty of dollars going around uh, to settle those things so this gets into what I what I often talk about in terms of systemic racism I mean when you have the military for for you know, over a hundred years playing such a pivotal pivotal role in the execution and the murders of native people I mean they're they didn't get called massacres because they wanted to call them massacres. They wanted to call them victories. In fact, one of the the final lines in one in L. Frank Baum's um, genocide editorial says, "An Eastern contemporary with a grain of wisdom in its wit says that when the whites win a fight, it's a victory. When the Indians win it, it's a massacre." Well, looking back at history, we now call those victories the Sand Creek, you know victory we call it a massacre we call all of these these massacres what they really are we're still not calling the those so-called race riots massacres i mean the tulsa the, what, what some of us call the tulsa massacre is still being referred to as a race riot well all of these would be race riots if you've got one race that is trying to exterminate another one you know and and the fact that you've got military and then ultimately you know police and judges and lawyers and uh, you know and governors uh, if not presidents that are complicit in these in these deaths yeah i don't I, you know we can we can play with words and we can call them massacres or we call them riots i guess but at the end of the day it massacres is what they were they i mean and every time one of these school shootings happen when i hear somebody say this is the largest you know, mass murder in the history of the, uh, uh, you know, of the United States. I'm thinking, yeah, but you're, you're ignoring every one of the massacres that took place to, uh, uh, you know, by, you know, uh, on native territories. And just because you don't have a single shooter, and just because you have the military or you have, you know, some of these other, you know, vigilante groups involved, I, you know, I, it's, it's just, every time we, we play this, you know, what, what they call oppression Olympics, where we got to, rank them well i'll tell you i'm going to talk about one of the one of the ranked historical um uh atrocities and, and that is the largest mass execution in the history of the united states that order signed by abraham lincoln and many people will try to defend that that took place that execution took place the day after christmas in 1862 the day after christmas i mean by some accounts thousands of Minnesotans in Mankato, Minnesota, came out to watch this execution. I mean, it was, it was spectacular. A massive gallows was constructed, one where you could line up 10 men on each side of this squared-off set of gallows. It, it was designed where, where 40 men could be hanged with one drop of the floor, 40 at a time. Of course, it would be 38 that would be hanged. And all of those white folks in their Sunday best with their children in tow would go out and see this spectacular event. An event that they would 
They were celebrating. They would celebrate the massacre at Mankato, Minnesota by, by taking the, uh, the illustrations of that massacre, of that execution, and they would print it on, on beer trays to a local beverage, a beverage house and, uh, and brewery. They would, be, that, they would be marked onto other kind of commemorative collectibles like thimbles and spoons and, and, and banners and posters and, 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 and the like. But it's the beer trays that come to mind because that's the one you can – you can actually search that on Google. You can look up Mankato, Minnesota execution beer tray, <laughs> and, you can, and you can find it. And they, they fetch a, a pretty good price on eBay and, and by traders of, uh, of collectibles. It was celebrated. And, of course, it wouldn't be taught later on because here's the thing. <laughs> Again, we got to put it into context, right? That execution would take place the day after Christmas in 1862, a week later. And what we will see in the next couple of days is the 160th anniversary of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Well, how ironic is that? And look, black people still cheer the Emancipation Proclamation. The last time it was put on public display, there were black people lined up around the blocks in Washington, D.C. To, to see the document never fully appreciating what that Emancipation Proclamation was. I mean, it was, attempt, it was an attempt by Lincoln to cause more of a slave revolt in the South, to kind of help tip the scales a little bit more on, on, the, on the Civil War. It wasn't even a, 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 an emancipation of, of slavery in the northern states, which still was happening in places like Jersey and other places. It was only the southern states. The, the states that were committing the, the, this act of treason against the, the Union. But that Emancipation Proclamation would come on January 1st in 1863, would be a week after this largest mass execution. Now, so where did, how did this execution you know, come about? Well, there were over 300 Lakota, Santi Sioux Lakota, that would be tried in a military court, they would not have lawyers. Most of them wouldn't even understand the language that was being spoken. They were put on trial, not knowing at all what was really happening. And 303 would be found guilty and sentenced to death. Now, Lincoln knew that executing 300 Lakota, at the same time that a, that a civil war is going on, and, and trying to you know, understand... understand well, how do you treat people who are involved in a legitimate military um, action? I mean, you, you don't – yes, there's killing in war, but the execution of people is something that, you know, through, through some sort of trial is handled differently on, because there are – there are, always have been considered some sort of rules of warfare. But that wasn't what was happening here. A military court – convicted 303 of these of these people for to to be executed and sentenced them to execution so lincoln whittled, whittled the number down at first he said well only give me the rapists and the ones who did these atrocities to you know to, to civilians and, and of course they couldn't come up with enough numbers to to satisfy the not just the military tribunal but the you know but the public so he he just 
you kind of looked at the num- names that were repeated in, in much of the, the court transcripts. Again, none of these people were, were properly defended. Over 300 of them would be tried throughout a period of a, of a couple of weeks. Sometimes their, their entire trial for, by, by individual would take minutes, minutes to be tried, convicted, and sentenced to, to death. But Lincoln would take 30, at first 39. His, his execution order was for, for 39 of them. I, it's a little unclear to me why 38 were executed and not 39, but 38 would be executed. Now, the rest were not let go. They weren't, they weren't pardoned for the crimes they were convicted of. No, most of they would, they would die in prison. That's one of the other myths that, that Lincoln just signed the execution order for 39 of them and the rest were, were pardoned. No, that, that, they weren't pardoned. So, so why did the conflict that led to this, these trials even happen? Well, because Lincoln signed the Homestead Act in the, beginning of 18, in, the, in the very beginning of 1862, in January. And this law enabled white people to take Native lands. Native people didn't even have a say in it. So they would occupy Native lands. And, of course, the promise was that Native people would be paid for those lands somehow by the federal government. Most people could get free lands through the Homestead Act. But the federal government would, would compensate the Native people for this loss of land. That compensation wouldn't come. Some argue, well, Lincoln was, going, uh, was having a hard time funding his civil war, so he couldn't afford to pay the Lakota for, you know, for the land, and, and he couldn't afford to send them the rations that they were now required to live off because their, their lands were being occupied by white people. I mean... There's, there's an irony, and I'm going uh, to you know, jump a couple of centuries here. This year was probably what is listed at, at this point as the last ride of the Dakota 38 plus two, because two more would be executed a couple of years later. But the, 38, the Dakota 38, they, there's actually a documentary you can, you can, uh, you can watch uh, called the Dakota 38, and it talks about one of the, the first rides that they did to reenact what where these Dakota would be, you know, where they had to travel and be dragged through to be executed in Mankato, Minnesota. And it's this treacherous ride that they go on every year. And in the movie, you see that there's, there's some people that are really troubled, especially some of the young people, troubled by the white people who actually try to help them on this ride. I mean, some of these, these white folks open up their, their you know, their very you know, luxurious ranches and they, they let the horses be um, sheltered in their barns and they were, the horses were fed and the people were fed and, and all of this great hospitality from these very, very generous white people. But what isn't understood is those, those white people were living these affluent lives on the very land stolen from, these, from, the, from the native people. Who, I mean, from their, the ancestors of these people on this ride. It's like nobody wants to reconcile the fact that, yes, even with this generosity that comes from these, these white folks, they're generous, all right, because they've, lived, they, they've been enriched, enriched by the, the theft of, this, of all this Lakota land. There's, there's like a, a complete disconnect. I mean, there were, there were white producers involved in the film, filming of the Dakota 38, and they couldn't understand why the Native people weren't more, <laughs> more appreciative for what these white people were doing for them, never understanding, even for a moment, 
that they're, they're seeing this, this affluence by white people. While most of these people, after this ride, which was really uplifting for them spiritually, would go back to living terrible lives. One young man in particular, Billy Ray Dumark, is highlighted in the film, and they, and they interview him a few times, and he talks about how he, he has problems with Caucasians, as he called white people. And, and, and this really was one of the things that bothered one of the producers, who was, who was featured in the film. At the end of the film, Billy Ray Dumark is kind of coming around. And, you know, he, seems, he doesn't seem quite as morose. He doesn't seem quite as depressed. He says he, how much he's looking forward to the next ride. But then when the film comes to an end, you, you, you read the, you know, the, the scroll at the end where they oftentimes, you know, they give all the credits and that kind of stuff, the film credits. But there's also a, a section where they talk about in, mem in, in memory of and there's a few people who died, you know, during the, the course of making the film. But Billy Ray Dumark was one of them. He was only young. He was a young man. And you don't know why he died unless you check. And then you find that he, he died of suicide. Billy Ray Dumark would not live to see another Dakota 38 ride. He went back to his territory of abject poverty, substance abuse, and just un unlivable conditions and would take his own life. That's the legacy of the execution in Mankato, Minnesota. But Lincoln signed that Homestead Act. He started what would turn out to be the, these Sioux Wars, as they called them. And for those who think, well, this was just, you know, you know a, a, an isolated incident that came out of you know, the breakdown of the Homestead Act and the, you know, the, the, the U.S. Treasury not being able to fulfill its commitments and that kind of stuff. Now, Lincoln was also the president during the Sand Creek Massacre. Remember I mentioned that one? The Sand Creek Massacre, which by many accounts is rife with, the, with more atrocities than, than the actual deaths that, that took place at other massacres. There was the savagery and butchery. There were, there were men that, Native men who had their genitalia cut off by U.S. soldiers, made tobacco pouches out of their scrotums. Same with the with the um, the breasts of women that were severed off, and 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 the men made pouches out of women's breasts. There's one account of soldiers after the fighting was over, who took out their rifles and were competing to trying to shoot this this child, this naked toddler, who was walking amongst the dead bodies, looking for his mother. And the soldiers were, were taking shots at him. And they were, they were bragging about, oh, who could take him out? Who could take him out? And this was, this was a, a account came from reporters who were there, who saw this unbelievable behavior. And the man in charge, Colonel Shivington, who was a, who was a preacher, who, who, who really bragged about, you know, killing killing Native people, killing Indians. He must have been held to account by the great Abraham Lincoln. No, he wasn't. He never was never held accountable. He may not have seen, you know, advancement in the military, but he wasn't court-martialed. He didn't pay any price for it. The whole thing was swept under a rug. They investigated. And even famed, you know, Indian killers like Kit Carson and, and others had 
talked about what a travesty, what, what, an, what an ugly situation this was. And there's, with, with every massacre that, that took place at the hands of the U.S. military, there were always some of those voices, you know, like, like Al Frank Baum, who said it was, a, it was a disgrace. Of course, he thought it was a disgrace because soldiers shot, shot, shot each other, not because of the loss of life of Native people. And of course, again, Woodenie is 1890. Sand Creek was, was 1864, during the Lincoln administration. So, I mean, it's important that, that there's context to this stuff and, and that people understand. Because when you can dehumanize a people to the point where you can shoot them like fish in a barrel and you can mutilate the women and children for entertainment or for souvenirs or trophies. That's, that is the basis for what we call embedded racism, systemic racism. So, so how does that systemic racism go away? Well, it doesn't. It just changes. We fast forward to today and we, you've, you've got a governor of the state of New York who would freeze all of the Seneca Nation accounts to squeeze them for a payment that she was probably going to get anyway, you know, uh, because of the, the, again, the systemic racism involved in the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. So Kathy Hochul freezes all of the Seneca Nation accounts to force them into making a payment to her, which is called, supposed to be revenue sharing, for half a billion dollars. She turns around, takes that half a billion dollars, and then gives it to the local billionaire, who owns the Buffalo Bills, so he can build a new stadium and throws more state funding and gets the county to throw more funding in, in, into building the stadium to enrich a white guy who made his money off of, off of, of fracking for, for natural gas. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. The white supremacy that lingers and then can, and then can operate through this Systemic racism. I mean, look, she had the legal right to do this. Why? Because the laws give white people the right to do this thing to other people. She, she used a state law to freeze the Seneca Nation accounts to extort a half a billion dollar payment out of them. And of course they complied. Their entire nation was frozen. They, were, they, they had to tell people, don't cash your paychecks. That is the legacy of Lincoln, of Harrison, of the Mankato execution, the, the Dakota uh, execution, the Dakota 38, and the massacre in Wounded Knee. You cannot have history support this level of genocide and atrocity and Never make, make it right. Instead, you embed things into law. You, you still treat Native people. Again, I talk about the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act being racist because you whip up a law out of thin air that says Native people must have their gaming industry regulated by the state and the federal government. Why? Why is that even? You didn't have that law in place. In fact, you had a Supreme Court ruling that said, oh, Native people have a right to do gaming. The Cabazon case. Within by the next year, Congress would, would rush through to pass the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act to 
to, to throw ropes around us and to make us have to partner with the states that surround us. Something that we have vehemently fought against in terms of taxation and regulatory authority on everything from tobacco to fuel to, to anything that we do on our territories, we have fought the state. Not just in New York State, in many states. Of course, many of these states became states through the illegal occupation of our lands. So, of course, we had terrible relationships with the states and still do in almost every state. Look, I know there are native politicians who, who make nice with, uh, with, with non-native po politicians. I mean, some of them get advanced right along. They, they run for Congress like Deb Haaland. They become the interior secretary like Deb Haaland. So, yeah, she made nice with, with the federal government and with, with white people. And she's been rewarded for that. And look, I don't begrudge Deb Haaland, but she doesn't represent Native people. She represents the President of the United States. And when she was on, in Congress, she represented predominantly the white people who voted for her. And I don't begrudge her for that. But the idea that somehow we're supposed to look at Native people who find success within that oppressive system, that they are somehow represent us. No, that's not true. It's just not true. We have debates in every Native territory as, as to those of us who say, no, we're not Americans. I'm, I'm a Mohawk. I'm Gunyagahaga. No, I'm Seneca. I'm Onondawaga. I'm not an American. Look, there are plenty of Native people who do take pride in their Canadian citizenship or their U.S. citizenship. And there are plenty that enlist in the armed forces. And why would they do that? Why would a Native person enlist in the very armed forces that committed these atrocities against us? I'll tell you why. Because of abject poverty. Because of very few, if none, as far as prospects for the future. When you look at your life, and the best opportunity you can have in your life for, for any type of life is to carry a rifle and, bear, and wear a uniform by the very country that committed atrocities against you and others? Think about how bad the other options had to be if that seemed like the great option. Yeah, I know some people don't want to talk about patriotism. Look, even those Native people who claim that they joined the military because they were protecting their lands. Look, if they were really protecting their lands, they would they'd be fighting. They would have fought the U.S. military. They'd be fighting the United States and Canada, not fighting for them. And and let's be honest, no other country ever invaded our territories. Only one country invaded our territories: the United States. Well, two, counting Canada. Those were the countries that invaded our territories. The bombing of Pearl Harbor. That was the Japanese bombing the U.S. military who was setting up as, as part of an illegal occupation. Hawaii wasn't even a state of the United States then. And it was not a legal U.S. territory either. They, they took over Hawaii through an illegal process called a Joint Resolution of Congress, which isn't even a legal process for, for adding annexing land to the United States, for adding territory. No, they, Japan was, was bombing the United States for their 
increased military presence within their sphere of influence. Um, Hawaii is quite a ways away from the United States, folks, in case you didn't know. And it was a sovereign nation recognized throughout the world before the United States went in there, toppled the, the, the kingdom of Hawaii, and then decided you know, that, that they needed Hawaii to, to assert a military presence against Asia, against, against the Japanese. Everybody says, oh, it was totally unprovoked. Well, no, it really wasn't totally unprovoked. And the Hawaiian people weren't bombed. Those illegal occupiers of the Hawaiian kingdom were bombed. So when I hear Native people say, well, we had to protect our land from, you know, from foreign aggression. Really? Really? So th this, this is the legacy of, of that terrible history. History that, and I've talked about this on the show before, we oftentimes silo Native issues. And by siloing, I mean we look at a specific part of Native history and we don't consider the context. We don't consider what was happening in the rest of the world, let alone the rest of the country. We don't think about who the president was. I mean, does anybody who listens to the show know that, that Lincoln was the president during the Sand Creek Massacre? Or what, or what significance that has? If you've listened to this program, you know he was the president during the, the largest mass execution in the history of the United States, the, the execution of the Dakota 38 in Mankato, Minnesota. But did you know he was the president during the Sand Creek Massacre? Did you know that the same guy who added six states to the United States and was, who was somewhat responsible for the Navy's um, involvement in the coup against the Hawaiian Kingdom? That, that same guy, Benjamin Harrison, was the president during the, the massacre at Wounded Knee? Does it matter? Well, hell yes, it matters. And look, this is the stuff that I try to present to the public, <clears throat> native and non-native. I try to present this so people understand the context. So people understand what we live with today. I mean, look, I, I, I saw a quote by Barack Obama praising the Homestead Act and what a great thing it was for the Union and praised the, the, the bravery and the courage of the, of the settlers who took advantage of the Homestead Act never even considering the fact that the Homestead Act was a violent act. Much of the conflict before the, the military would kill so many of the Lakota during the Sioux Wars that would come at, as a result of the, of the Homestead Act was because white people were killing Native people who were merely trying to survive while their lands were being taken, while their resources were being taken, while the food was being taken from them. And yet, Barack Obama will, will, will praise the Homestead Act. And so have many presidents. Uh, uh, Donald Trump did the same thing. Yeah, there you go. There's, there's a comparison. There's something that Donald Trump and Barack Obama had in, in, in common. They both praised the Homestead Act. 
which, which was an act of violence against Native people. But this is what I have an opportunity to, to, to present to you, the, the listening audience, not just of Pacifica, but of, of WPFW. So, again, as I close out the last show of this year, let me ask you to go to the WPFW pledge line, 202-588-9739, and make a donation to this fine radio station, a radio station that has committed themselves to providing space for my voice, for a Native voice. That's 202-588-9739, or go online to wpfwdc.org slash donate. Support Jazz and Justice Radio. Again, Jazz and Justice Radio, a radio station that combines the untamed and the free expression of jazz music and, and, and the blues and its connection to justice and the, the commitment for this radio station to demonstrate the fight for social justice. That's WPFW 89.3 on your FM dial. You can listen to us online and you can listen to this broadcast as a podcast by searching Resistance Radio with John Kane. I also encourage you to check out my other podcast, which is Let's Talk Native with John Kane as well. Ask your smart speaker to, to play it. And please do support WPFW, your listener-supported radio station. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.